Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Garth Graham, Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health at Google YouTube. A cardiologist, researcher, and public health expert, Garth is well-positioned to help discuss where we stand today with COVID-19. Garth, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to your interest in medicine? Uh, thanks, Richard, for asking me that question. I think I bring a kind of a mix of a variety of different backgrounds, both on the professional and personal end. Professional, I'm a cardiologist by training. And um, I did my um, med school at, at Yale and my cardiology at uh, Johns Hopkins and have gone through a variety of different roles in the healthcare industry. Um, I spent um, a decent amount of time in the federal government, where I was a, a deputy assistant secretary in both the Bush and Obama administrations, and then um, went back into academics, where I was chief of health services research in the Department of Medicine at the University of Florida, and then over into corporate America, um, where I first started at the uh, Aetna Foundation, but then ultimately, uh, prior to this job, was chief community health officer at CVS Health. On a personal level, uh, I always like to throw that in because I think for most of us, our careers aren't defined by just what we've done at work. Uh, we bring so much to the table in that equation. Uh, so I was born in Jamaica and raised partially in Miami um, and partially in Jamaica. So I have a kind of a mixture of that uh, Caribbean American heritage. Now you've had a, a very wide breadth of experiences. So I'm just curious how these past experiences helped to prepare you for your current role at Google and YouTube Health. Yeah, so I have long been driven by this idea of uh, community health at scale and how can you empower communities um, in a variety of different ways. And that I think um, goes from kind of my, my earlier personal experiences, both in the Jamaican and the United States and the ways in which I think uh, many communities, particularly those underserved communities can be empowered to make decisions and the power that vests within those communities, particularly on health and public health. So my life and personal experiences have led me to, to really try to work on this issue of how to address um, health challenges at scale. The challenge that um, we're taking on, and I think you and others equally have also taken on, is this issue of how to, to deliver public health, health information to communities across the country, um, uh, in YouTube's case, across the world, and how do we empower communities to live their healthiest lives, particularly through health information and the kinds of things that allow them to make the right decisions at the right time. So for me, the issue of uh, empowering communities with health information has been a lifelong uh, endeavor. So there's a lot of confusion right now in communities about COVID-19 and vaccines. Given that, I'm curious, what is your vision for health content on YouTube and specifically how do you think it can help improve general health literacy and access to good information? Yeah, so um, in particular, when we think through the issue of getting community information, I, I say in public health now, gone are the days when people um, are looking for information in flyers or on billboards. You know, people want information to be a part of their daily life and to be received as a part of their daily life. Um, so in the palm of their hands on their phone or through other kinds of ways in which they're used to both receiving information and sharing information as well. And so, you know, what we're able to do is I think using 
the power of the platform of YouTube, which reaches 2 billion people across the world every month, be able to engage people directly um, with health information in a way that's part of how they were used to receiving their information in general about all kinds of, of non-health related matters. So I think it's a way of, of reaching people at scale in a way that they're used to receiving their information. That makes sense. And, and I think patient education is kind of one half of the equation. And, and, and the way I think of it, the other half is clinical education. And now we know we need to flatten the curve and you know prevent so many people from getting sick and entering the healthcare field. Um, but what are your ideas on how we help raise the line? In other words, help boost clinical bandwidth and, and education? So, you know, there's two ways I think about kind of YouTube and clinician education. One is clinician engagement. As clinicians, healthcare practitioners, folks who have an interest and a driver on public health, we have to remember that delivering information is, is kind of part of even the role of healthcare providers, doctors. I mean, part of our role, doctors are to be teachers. Um, and we have to teach the community, deliver that information in engaging ways. Another kind of prior um, way is, you know, uh, healthcare information that was just in journals and in textbooks and not in people's minds and hearts. It's kind of the old way of things. I think COVID has allowed us to, to have the, the world engage around health and public health. And in particular, the world wants to be engaged. People want to know what is messenger RNA. Um, they want to know what are these new ways of um, improving health. I think that what it shows is that we have to be more innovative about the way we deliver information to patients um, and make sure it's engaging. Now, even for sharing information from clinician to clinician, again, clinicians are people and part of the community. So um, certainly I think, you know, we'll continue to see the evolution of how we, you know, make science available in the traditional ways. But again, clinicians themselves want information to be available in the palm of their hand and to, to learn from other clinicians in that way. And I think that's where efforts like the ones we, we've worked together on with YouTube on osmosis um, around educating clinicians is a way to, again, spread information rapidly. You know, the expectation that bench to bedside and bench to community is, you know, a decade. I think that's changed with COVID. And I think now clinicians want to be able to, to get the scientific information sooner to be able to make those decisions faster. So you've worked in different industries, academia, government, healthcare foundations, tech. What is your take on how the culture in these different entities helps or maybe impedes how well they work together? Oh, yeah. I mean, culture. I think to me, culture is always a dominant driving force in terms of how things get done. There's a, the terminology culture trumps strategy, and I think that's true. In healthcare, there's some good components. I think in healthcare, we, there's a culture of putting the patient first. And I think this idea, um, certainly I think for uh, physicians and other clinicians of doing no harm um, and making sure that things are developed in the best interest of the, the patient. But one of the challenges we face in healthcare is we still have a healthcare focused way of delivering things, meaning it's the delivery system delivering care as opposed to a consumer or community-based focus, looking at it from the eyes of the people receiving the information and receiving care. Where tech has a, a different angle is tech is uh, very much user focused. So, you know, things are developed from the eye of the user, the eye of the, the patient, the eye of the consumer. And so somehow the melding together of those ideas of being patient centric, but looking at it from the eyes of the users, the ideal ways in which I think those two industries come together. Certainly there are a lot of challenges, I think, with issues around disparities and equity that go across 
tech, go across healthcare, go across a variety of different industries that um, defines a challenge. But I think where they come together positive in terms of solutions are this idea of um, doing um, user slash patient slash community centric endeavors with the eye of the best interest of those communities at heart. So YouTube started, you know, roughly, let's say 20 plus years ago as a place and at the time, you know, maybe for silly videos and things like that. And, and now YouTube Health is at the forefront of how to do medicine more effectively. Do you mind helping me understand how things evolved over the years? You know, I think the evolution of YouTube is a demonstration of the evolution of the power of video. I think earlier on, the concept of um, YouTube started, you know, focused on this, I would probably say generically entertainment, you know, and, and ways in which to um, engage users around entertaining facts and videos that were entertaining. What's evolved, though, is people realize that uh, video can be used to demonstrate so many things as part of your daily life. You know, people go to YouTube when they want to fix an appliance in their house. You know, people go to YouTube um, when they want to think about ways of educating their children. You know, people go to YouTube when they are looking for all of these different parts of getting visible information that they can act and react to. So I think the evolution of YouTube has been a, a part and parcel of the evolution of the power of video. And now video is being used to translate very complicated uh, piece of information, certainly in COVID, complicated piece of public health and clinical information. So I'd say the evolution of YouTube is the evolution of video, but also the evolution of uh, people wanting information in the palm of their hands. And so I think that's probably a lot of the engine and the drivers for that. Got it. And, and given that, I, I, I'm curious if you'd be willing to kind of walk me into the future a bit now. So what do you see happening in the coming years, both here in the U.S. and around the world? One of the interesting things is YouTube delivers video, but also delivers text. What you see is you know, variations in country pattern usage of YouTube in terms of text and video. You also see, um, you know, YouTube emerging as a primary search engine in many countries as well. So I think down the road, what this speaks to is what I kind of alluded to before is the ways in which people are looking for video to answer um, any question as they come along. And, you know, quite frankly, globally, you see where, um, you know, different communities, you know, different people are looking for the kind of video that's engaging to them, that's relatable to them, that delivers information, not just the languages that they speak, but the culture that they speak. So that's where I think the evolution of YouTube and, and similar entities continues to go is this idea of engagement, reach, and um, depth in terms of different ways to deliver information. Now, it used to be that the learner back in the day had to go through an intermediary, you know, a, a school to, to get to learning. But now a learner can go directly to the learning without necessarily going to school. And I'm curious, have you seen that sort of power shift manifest in unexpected ways? Mm -hmm. I love the way you put it. This shift towards a person-centric approach is what is emblematic in the education um, example that you just gave. And what it means is we forget often that people are behind all of these things. When I say that, I mean, you know, we create information and we create structures of delivering educational information, health information, um, certainly many times from the organization who's delivering it. But what's happening now is that people are feeling empowered to figure out how to get this information different ways and the system adjusts, um, which is kind of what you see with, um, with the education example that you just gave. I think it's pertinent for healthcare because 
for so long in healthcare and public health, we have had a somewhat paternalistic approach to how we address uh, patients, communities, and consumers. And now that they're getting empowered appropriately for a variety of different reasons, technology being one component of that, we have to think through their needs primarily as they focus on their needs primarily in terms of how people want to get their health information. That's a great point. And, uh, you know, as you know, we're a teaching company. We love to fill knowledge gaps. I'd love to identify some topic that you'd like to educate us on, something that you think everyone ought to know. Wow, I love this question. You know, um, I think through my journey through, through health and public health, this concept of patient empowerment is one thing I, I would want to deliver, particularly to medical students and uh, trainees who we sometimes forget as we train them to have them see life through the eyes of the community, through the eyes of the patient. And the one thing I would, I would want certainly that audience to understand is patients, communities, um, users are not looking for you to solve all of their problems. Many times they're looking for you to work with them on their problems and be a partner in sharing information, their problems. And um, this comes from kind of the old community empowerment model when you look at community health and um, community health best works when there are uh, partnerships, particularly symbiotic partnerships between communities and the infrastructure that's partnering with them. And there's a whole bunch of data to show that. And so the one issue I always, I still lecture at different, you know, grand rounds and different uh, training um, aspects. And I always end with a slide on partnerships and engagement. And I think this goes from community also but to the patient level. And when you when you're seeing a patient, just remember that most times patients are wanting to work with you on the, their journey for their better health, not necessarily looking for you to be the solver of all their problems. And if you, if you approach that mindset um, as you are engaging patients and communities, you'll find that the give and take is mutually rewarding on both ends. There's a lot of ego, uh, as you know, Garth, in clinical medicine, particularly among physicians. Uh, it's been that way for, for many, many years. And YouTube has actually helped make getting information easier than ever before. And I'm wondering whether physicians resent that or, or whether they appreciate that when their patients come in self-empowered with information about their condition. What have you seen? I'm old enough to remember the early times when patients would go home and search for answers on search engines. We were resentful of that um, in, in medicine and clinical care. And Nowadays, a lot of that's different. Um, I think certainly a lot of the younger generation appreciates this concept of patient empowerment, patients having information. I personally love my patients that come in with questions they've thought of before because it has them to be more engaged in their healthcare. And I think to answer your question more succinctly, the democratizing of information, especially for healthcare, is a powerful way for us to motivate patients by delivering information to them outside of the clinical setting. So the ways in which um, you, your organization, our organization, others work to deliver information, I think is particularly powerful to improve in health outcomes, particularly as, as we make sure that what they get is scientifically correct, factually correct, um, and evidence-based information. Now, I'm going to ask you a very broad question based on the fact that you've worn so many different hats in your professional career. What do you think the COVID-19 crisis has revealed about the healthcare system? And what are some key steps that you think could strengthen it? A lot of times when I've been asked this question before, I think people expect, you know, the focus on health disparities, then COVID-19 highlighted health disparities, but 
you and others and people who've been long in, in public health um, know that those disparities seen in COVID-19 have been seen in many other disease entities, practically all major disease entities. And so COVID-19 has just been a more visible example of that um, and hopefully motivate us to do better. Two things COVID-19 showed is one, um, the ways in which we had not been engaging community as much as we thought we had been. And the ways in which um, community engagement still serves as the backbone of healthcare and public health delivery at scale, because we, we want communities to get information and act on it and do these series of things next to improve population and public health. But in many ways, as you saw, uh, particularly domestically in COVID-19, people were confused. They weren't sure about the information. They um, were making decisions that were not necessarily always in their best interest. So I think this idea of community engagement and its importance for public health outcomes is one of those things I think highlighted by COVID-19. And I think certainly um, one way in which tackling those dis the disparities were important. The other thing I would say COVID-19 showed was how fast we can move when we need to. Telemedicine um, for a long time had been moving along at a snail's pace, not on the patient side, but particularly on the provider and the system side. And then when we needed to change, you know, we changed as a healthcare delivery system in weeks to months. You know, people switched around how um, appointments were so that patients could safely do that from home. And that was something that people have been trying to articulate as a vision in terms of delivery of telemedicine for a long time. So I think the, the, the surprising thing it showed to me is that the healthcare system is not this mammoth dinosaur that moves so, so slowly in all cases. It's mammoth, but what it is is probably more like a, an elephant that can pick up speed when it needs to. Um, <laughs> and so we need to think about that for other components of post-COVID crises, particularly around mental health um, and other issues that we need to deal with as well. Got it. I'm going to remember that, Garth. The, the healthcare is an elephant and uh, it can stampede if needed at times. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, we have many students in the early stage of their careers, and I'm curious to get your advice uh, to them about meeting the challenges of this moment as they approach their career in healthcare. Yeah, you know, healthcare has energized uh, particular students around how important um, it means to be a healthcare provider and a public health leader. You know, my advice for students is follow your passions and that passion that has kind of carried you this far. I don't know where along the line, Rishi, as we've trained students, we sometimes have them focus on their anatomy, pharmacology, and their physiology without continuing to stoke a lot of those things that brought them to health and public health in the first place, that passion for changing individual lives, that passion for not just the heart, but the actual patient that goes along with the heart um, and the lungs. And I think what my advice to students is that passion that brought you here, stick with it, because um, that's a passion you're going to need on the other end, when you get out of training to deal with these major public health and healthcare challenges that we're facing. And I would say that hopefully there will be a point where COVID is entirely in our rear view mirror, unclear when that's gonna be, given all the global dynamics that we're seeing now. Uh, but at the point when um, COVID is in our rear view mirror, there'll be other problems that are in that front view mirror as well. And that same passion that you're gonna need that drove us through COVID, we're going to need that to deal with the other challenges um, on the road. Well, that's a fantastic point to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham, for being with us today. That was incredible. 
Thanks, Rishi. And again, thanks to you all for, um, I think, being a part of the ingredients of change that we talked about, particularly using technology and all of those tools that we need to empower communities. Garth, that's really kind of you to say. I, I on behalf of the whole team, uh, really appreciate you saying that. So thank you. Listen, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>